You underestimate the power of the dark side. If you will not fight, then you will meet your destiny. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Pursuit of Truth podcast. My name is Will. I am your host. Today's date is May 9th of 2023. It's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And this is going to be episode 134. It's going to be called The Occult, The Left-Hand Path, Part 2. Now, when I left off, I, you know, I didn't want to make you guys wait um, because we are we are studying the dark side of the force here, okay? And we're gonna be keep we're gonna be studying the dark side of the force for quite a while. And that's the reason I put up the Vader quotes because you know I just everyone recognizes Darth Vader's voice and things like that. I think just think he has some great quotes. So when we left off, we were talking about our satanic rituals, our black mass, right? And so when we left off. Uh, I actually had a um, the translation for one of the ending parts of the Black Mass, and I do believe that this PDF has a lot more um, rituals than just that. Now, obviously, you know, we're, this is still the same ritual with the naked woman being the altar and the things like that, and the Baphomet and the upside down cross. I wanted to film it quick. I wanted to not film, but I wanted to record this quickly so that you didn't even have to wait, so you could just get this information uh, as soon as possible because I didn't want I didn't want you to have to I didn't want anybody actually to have to go back and re-listen to 133 um, I just wanted you to get this information as soon as possible you know as soon as you know you could so uh, we're going to continue with that so yeah I mean we have the nun peeing into the cup and then the wafer and everything like that and he's you know the, the, the dark priest is like lifting his hands and everything like that and you know he's raising the, the wafer to the Baphomet, and he's angry. He is angry when he says this passage. Now, I will, as I am reading this passage, I will interpret it for you uh, from what I saw, because um, it's it's kind of weird the way it's written. But I will make sure that you understand it. <clears throat> and so, this priest, he says this in anger. During his during his speech, this is what he says when he's lifting the wafer, looking at the audience and everything like that during the black mass. Here's what he says, and I will interpret what he means. Thou, thou whom in my capacity of priest, I force whether thou wilt or no to descend into this host to incarnate thyself into this bread. Jesus, artisan of hoaxes, bandit of homages, robber of affection here. Since the day when thou didst issue this complacent bowels of a false virgin, thou hast failed all thy engagements, belied all thy promises. So pretty much he's uh, saying that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. Uh, You know, Jesus, you know, you're pretty much a piece of bread that we can break apart. Um, you're a liar. You're a bandit. You don't even hear people's when people need affection. You're not there. To listen to them. That's what he means <clears throat> at this point. He goes on. He says, centuries have a wept. Excuse me. Centuries have wept awaiting thee, fugitive God, mute God. Thou hast excuse me. Thou wast to redeem man and thou has not. So he's pretty much saying that um, people, you know, were waiting for you to appear, come in the skies. But where are you now? You haven't done anything. You 
pretty much he's he's saying that God is stagnant. He's static. He doesn't do anything. He's a fugitive. He's running away from his purpose. Goes on and says, "Thou thou was to redeem man, and thou hast not. Thou was to appear in thy glory, and thou steepest." So instead of he's saying that instead of God appearing in glory, he he stooped down and became man. You know, that's pretty much what what he's saying. Like like uh, like Jesus, like they say in this, like they say in some some old quotes of the old saints, they'll say that Jesus could have called ten thousand angels to rescue him, or you know. Obviously, they say if you're the son of man, like during the crucifixion, you're the son of man, bring yourself off the cross and everything like that. But Jesus did say that I laid down my life and I can take it up whenever I want. He said that. So, goes on. It says, obviously, thou wast to redeem man, thou hast not. Thou wast to appear in glory and thou steepest. Go. He goes on. It says, go, lie, say to the wretch who appeals to thee, hope, be patient, suffer. The hospital of souls will receive thee. Angels will succor thee. Heavens open to thee. Pretty much what this means is that he's, Satan is telling God, all those people who believed in you, thought you would do something, as they suffer, go tell them to be patient and just suffer, right? But in reality, ladies and gentlemen, Christ suffered, so why not us? Remember in the Garden of, uh, I believe, Gethsemane, before Christ was arrested, he talked, he talked to God and said, you know, if you take this cup of suffering from me, you know, he, he asked God to take this cup of suffering, but God didn't. You know, if Christ suffered, that means we have to suffer, right? So it says, hope, be patient, suffer. The hospital of souls will receive thee. Angels will succor thee. Heaven's open to thee. And then he goes on, he says, imposter. Thou knowest well that the angels, disgusted at thy inertness, abandon thee. So he, he's pretty much saying that those He's saying the angels, but in reality, it's the evil angels, the fallen angels, the demons that Satan convinced to, obviously, to 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 defect, right? Because they didn't like the way that God was running things. So, imposter, thou knowest well that the angels, disgusted at thy inertness, abandon thee. Thou wast to be the interpreter of our plaints, our plaints being our cries, right? You were supposed to be the one who... Show, you know, you're supposed to be the one who stood up for us, the chamberlain of our tears. Thou was to convey them to the cosmos, and thou hast not done so. For this intercession would disturb thy eternal sleep of happy, happy satiety. So pretty much what's going on here is that Satan is saying, oh, you were supposed to save people. You were supposed to, you know, mend their wounds and things like that. You were supposed to comfort them. You were supposed to, like, you were supposed to advocate for these people. But if you were to advocate for these people, if you were to come down here and do something, it would disturb what you're already doing, which is nothing, because you just like to sleep and, and do nothing while you sit up there on your throne. That's what is being said here. It goes on. It says, Thou hast forgotten the poverty thou that thou didst preach, vassal enamored of banquets, Thou hast seen the weak crushed beneath the press of profit while standing by and preaching servility. Oh, the hypocrisy. Now, what this one means is that obviously, you know, Jesus was a, was poor when he was on earth because Jesus said that the son of man has nowhere to rest his head. And it says vassal enamored of banquets. I mean, pretty much meaning like you're, you're, you're just a slave to all these banquets and fine things that you have on your throne. And you're sitting up there and all these weak people are being crushed 
while you're just standing by and telling these people who are being crushed to serve the people that are crushing them. You're a hypocrite for that because nobody stands above you and no one is crushing you. That's what's being said. It, it, it continues. He says, oh, the hypocrisy. That man should accept woe unto himself is testimony to his blindness. That very affliction uh, did credit thyself that that thou did credit thyself to cure. So pretty much he's saying mankind is blind for being able to, for just accepting these hardships, even though mankind is blind for accepting these hardships that you said that you were cure, even though you didn't goes on and says, Oh, lasting foulness of Bethlehem. We would have thee confess thy impudent cheats, thy, thy inexpiable crimes. We would drive deeper the nails into thy hands, press down the crown of thorns upon thy brow, and bring blood from the dry wounds of thy sight. So pretty much bloodlust there, right? And so pretty much he's, you know, he's just blasphemy. Just straight blasphemy. It's, it, that speaks for itself. You know, uh, impudent cheats, inexpiable crimes. Inexpiable crimes, uh, he means things like standing up there and preaching, being... Uh, being servants to the people who are crushing you. That's that's what he means by crimes like that, like sitting upon your throne while people are being crushed and not doing anything about it. That's what he's saying, right? And then the bloodlust of driving the nails deeper, pressing down the crown of thorns, and blood from the wounds of uh, thy sides. So after he talked about the thorns and the sides and pressing the nails deeper and things like that, and bringing the blood from the, the side of your wound, the wounds, he, the priest pretty much goes out here and says, and this we can we can and will do by violating the quietude of thy body, profaner of the ample vices, abstractor of stupid purities, cursed Nazarene, impotent king, fugitive God. Behold, great Satan, the symbol of the flesh of him who would purge the earth of pleasure and who in the name of Christian justice, quote, quote, has caused the death of millions of honored brothers. We curse him and defile his name. Okay. That one speaks for itself. Okay, pretty much, um, you know, talk about violating the quietude of thy body because, you know, it says profaner the ample vices. You know, the Bible talks about your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit, you know, to honor God with your body. And, you know, Satan is saying like, oh, we're going to violate this body, right? And, you know, obviously... Uh, Abstractor of stupid purities, cursed Nazarene, um, stupid purities, you know, abstaining from sex before marriage, um, things like that, not sinning, things like that, right? Because Satan is telling people you shouldn't abstain from that stuff. And it, it also goes on, he also goes on to um, call God uh, him who would purge the earth of pleasure. Um, you know, pleasure seeking individualism is part of this, as we talked about in our last part. So it's like God is not into that individualistic me, 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 me. It's all about me. God's not into that. And Satan was all about that, which you know I'll get to in a little bit because Satan talked about exalting his throne above the stars of God. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. That's what it was. So it goes on. It says, the priest says, Oh, infernal majesty, condemn him to the pit. Evermore to suffer in perpetual anguish. Bring thy wrath upon him, O prince of darkness, and and rend him that he may know the extent of thy anger. Call forth thy legions that they may witness what we do in thy name. Send forth thy messengers to proclaim, pro proclaim this deed and send the Christian minions staggering to their doom. Smite him anew, O Lord of light, 
that his angels, cherubim, and seraphim may cower and tremble with fear, prostrating themselves before thee in respect of thy power, sin crashing down the gates of heaven that the murderers of our ancestors may be avenged. Okay. Basically, that just means what it says. You know, it's like, it's it's pretty much implicating that Satan would defeat God, but we know that's not going to happen. Okay. That's pretty much what all that means. Like, make all the angels who didn't turn with us cower before us and things like that. You know, use like you're going to sit on the throne and all that, just all that stuff. You, you understand. Now, after the priest says this, he, you know, then he, once again, ladies and gentlemen, this is not for the kids. The kids shouldn't be hearing this. Once again, so during this, this black mass, after the, after the priest gets done with this spiel, this uh, monologue here, the priest will then insert the wafer into the vagina of the altar, the naked woman, and then he removed it. He removes it and holds it up to the Baphomet and says, Vanish into nothingness, thou fool of fools, thou vile of abhorred pretender to the majesty of Satan. Vanish into the void of thy empty heaven, for thou wert never, not thou shall ever be. So pretty much, pretty much saying like, you know, Satan is God and God isn't really, God is a pretender and He's not the real God. That's pretty much what it's saying. You know, just by defiling, like he said, defiling someone's body. It's like when he puts the wafer into the altar, altar's vagina, that's a way of defiling because that's penetrating with the fingers. That's digital penetration and things like that. So that's also an, a way of uh, defiling the body during the ritual. So after he removes the wafer, he gets the cup. Um, Excuse me. Yes, after he, he says that, you know, he inserts the wafer, takes it out, vanishes into nothingness, you're the pretender, things like that. Then the priest would then raise that wafer that he took out of the altar, and then he dashes it to the floor, and he, and it is, and he tramples it, and the deacon and subdeacon, they all trample it while the gong is struck continually. The celebrant, being the, once again, the priest, takes the chalice into his hand, faces the altar, which is the naked woman, and before drinking, he recites the following. Uh, that is in a different, uh, actually, yeah, actually, I actually have it. I actually have it. Sorry. So before drinking, you know, he obviously turns to the, turns to the altar, uh, presents the chalice and, uh, says the following words. When all have drunk, the drained chalice is replaced on the altar, the paten placed on top of it and the veil placed over both. The celebrant then extends his bare hands, palms downward and, and recites a concluding statement. He then bows before the altar and turns to give the blessing of Satan to the assemblage, extending his left hand, the left hand path to the, uh, excuse me, extending his left hand path and something called the cornu, the sign of the sign of the horns. And he says, all assembled company rise, face altar and raise arms in the cornu. And the cornu is literally that like that sign that you do with the bowls with like your middle finger and your ring finger down and then your thumb in and then it's just your pinky and your um and index finger up. That's literally the cornu. You, you might see celebrities do it and things like that. It's that's literally a satanic symbol. So you might see celebrities, you know, celebrities do it like Eminem and uh, album covers and things like that. So yeah, that's where that comes from. The the, the black mass ritual. So after that, he says, let us depart. It is done. And then the deacon and subdeacon say, so it is done. And then the, uh, the priest, the deacon, and the subdeacon bow towards the altar, turn, and then they leave. The candles are, candles are all snuffed and everybody leaves the chamber. I don't know what's, what goes on with the, the altar, the naked woman. 
I don't know. So. All right. So I'm going to read my notes a little bit and then I'm going to um, read my notes out loud to you. And then I'm going to go on. Uh, there's another ritual called the ceremony of the stifling air. Uh, that's actually pretty interesting. We'll get into that in a second. So obviously, you know, um, the dark priest is talking in anger. Uh, you know, to recap, the dark priest is, is speaking in anger through this black mass ritual. Um, the passage is partially the words of a man, or, or words of mankind, and partially the words of Satan. Now, certain Satan has actually inserted blasphemy and the grievances of humans because uh, of how we think God should operate when he doesn't operate the way we think he should. Now, Isaiah 55, 9 says... As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Unquote. Now, like I said, God doesn't operate like we think he should. He doesn't even operate how angels think he should. Now, this goes to show that God is so mighty that even the angels don't understand him, seeing as Satan was uh, Lucifer and uh, a guardian cherub. Now, the New Living Translation of Ezekiel 28.14, it says, quote, I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire, unquote. That is God talking about uh, Lucifer. Now, in this rant by the priest, now Satan is masquerading as an orphan or an abandoned refugee that God didn't help when they needed it, you know. This passage is also implying that God did not come to the aid of those who are suffering when they needed help. And God told them to just be patient without offering a way out for those suffering. Now, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light, unquote. Now, the Bible also calls him the father of lies and that there is no truth in him. John 8, 44 says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, Satan, this passage masquerades, like I said, masquerades as someone who is in need of saving and plays upon the human need for help in times of trouble. Satan tells people to turn from God because God didn't fit their definition of righteous, just, and deliverance. But we know that this was not who Satan really is, because Isaiah 14, 13 through 14 says, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, unquote. Satan's just lying about who he is, even in that satanic ritual um, monologue. So my notes say, so Satan was a murderer who never told the truth and literally tried to kill God and take his place on the throne. He even convinced some of the angels to follow him. And Revelation chapter 12 said that the dragon used his tail and swept a third of the stars out of the sky. Revelation chapter 12 also talks about the war in heaven as well. So that's what my notes say about that. All right, so let's switch gears here. There's something, so we, we went over the black mass uh, ritual. Now we're going to go to something called the Ceremony of the Stifling Air. Okay. So, the Ceremony of the Stifling Air is a ceremony in which uh, was performed when entering the sixth degree of the Order of the Knights Templar. 
it celebrates a reawakening of the flesh and a rejection of past self-denials and symbolic rebirth is attained through a contrived entombment. The ceremony originated in the 13th century. In its original form, it was not the historical parody into which it later developed. Accounts of the uh, performance of El Air Apice, which is the ceremony of stifling air, it's, the, it's just in Latin, uh, ultimately strengthened the charges of King Philip IV of French in his campaign to abolish the rich order, which was banished in 1331. The Templars had been exposed to the dualistic concept of the Yazidis, Y-E-Z-I-D-I-S, in the Near East. They had seen pride glorified and life praised as never before. When they entered the courtyard of the serpent and the sanctuary of the peacock, you know, serpent, Satan, the peacock being the uh, fire god Adramalek, where indulgence became tantamount to greater power. As a result, they developed what was destined to become one of the most significant rites of Satanism, martyrdom. Once believed desirable was considered with disgust and ridicule and fierce pride was to become the Templar's last image to the world. The philosophy of Sheikh Adi and the Yazidis applied to the, uh, applied to the already acquired wealth and physical resources of the Templars. It might have actually drawn the Western world away from Christianity if it had not stopped. Even with the banishment of the Templars, their combination of prideful, life-adoring principles joined with Western goal-oriented materialism did not wholly succumb as borne out by any history of post-Templar fraternal orders. As the Templars had gained power, they had become more materialistic and less spiritual-minded. Kind of sounds like our society today. Rites, such as the stifling air, therefore, presented timely and compatible statements to men who had turned from their er earlier heritage of self-sacrifice, abstinence, and poverty. The fraternal attainment conferred by the ceremony of the stifling air would correspond to the 34th degree of Freemasonry if such a grade did exist. The present Scottish rite ends at the 33rd degree, which is master of the royal secret. And it has an additional degree conferred with under honorary circumstances. Correspondingly, exalted status is attained in York Rite Masonry at its 10th grade, which carries out the title of Knight Templar. The, ori the original Templar's Rite of the 5th degree symbolically guided the candidate through what is called the Devil's Pass in the mountains separating the East from the West. And it's in the Yazidi domain. At the fork of the trail, the candidate would make an important decision, either to retain his present identity or strike out on the left-hand path to Shambhala, where he might dwell in Satan's household, having rejected the foibles and hypocrisies of the everyday world. A striking American parallel to this rite is enacted within the mosques of the ancient Arabic order of the nobles of the mystic shrine. It is an order reserved only for 33rd degree, excuse me, 32nd degree Masons. The nobles have gracefully removed themselves from any implication of heresy by referring to the place beyond the devil's pass as the domain where they might, quote, worship at the shrine of Islam, unquote. It kind of ties Islam into, uh, into this, right? The ceremony of... 
the stifling air, excuse me, the ceremony of the stifling air, sorry, it's in, I'm trying to read it in English, but it's, it's usually in Latin here. Ceremony of the stifling air is impossible to perform without an indiscreet degree of blasphemy toward the Christian ethic, hence its, hence its exclusion from Masonic ritual, thereby halting any further progression beyond the 33rd degree Scottish Rite and 10th grade York Rite level. The Order of the Rosy Cross of Aleister Crowley's magic curriculum provided an interesting comparison in its seventh degree. They call it Adeptus Exemptus. In that rite, the alternative to taking the left-hand path was to become what they call a babe of the abyss, which is not as contradictory and confusing as it sounds. If one considers uh, Crowley's oft-times Machiavellian modus operandi. Crowley, nobody's fool, simply set up a magical maze so that students whose consciences would only allow them to tread the right-hand path would never, nevertheless wind up on the left anyway. Fortunately, a, f a precious few of Crowley's disciples progress as far as the grade of Adeptus Exemptus, thus neatly preventing problems that might have arisen from such rude spiritual awakenings. awakenings. The overtly anti-Christian sentiments of the Ceremony of the Stifling Air classified it as a black mass, according to the accounts that were employed to indict the Templars. Uh, upon assuming the sixth degree, a candidate renounced all life-denying spirituality and acknowledged an understanding of the material world as a prerequisite to higher planes of existence. This is a ritual of the death-defiant and allows any unconscious death motivations to be exercised. It is a statement of rebirth, of the delights of life as opposed to the negation of death. The celebrant in the same original version of the Ceremony of the Stifling Air is represented as a saint, a martyr, or other paragon of selflessness. This is done to emphasize the transition from self-denial to self-indulgence. The ceremony of rebirth takes place in a large coffin. The coffin contains an, a, an unclad woman, so a naked woman, whose task is to awaken lust in the quote-quote dead man who joins her. This ceremony can serve as a twofold purpose— one, as a rejection of death and a dedication to life, or two, blasphemy against those who crave misery, distress, and negation. A celebrant, meaning the participant in the ritual, who is basically a, excuse me, a celebrant who is basically life-loving can release all needs for self-abasement by willingly, quote, quote, dying, thereby, thereby exercising the self-destructive motivations he might be harboring. This ceremony is a ceremony through which one might get the idea of death over with and out of his system, while turning death, death's accounterments into instruments of lust and life. The coffin, the principal device, contains the manifestation of the force that is stronger than death, the lust that produces new life. This is similar to the coffin symbolism that, with a euphemistic veneer, is found in most lodge rituals. If the celebrant is patently masochistic, he can, through transference, become a surrogate for members of the congregation who may harbor the same propensity. He suffers a fate worse than death when, within the coffin, instead of experiencing the hoped-for spiritual reward, he is confronted with unexpected passions from which he has long abstained. And it also says if, if, if a homophile portrays a celebrant, so pretty much if the person participating in the ritual is gay, then the coffin is going to have another man in there. 
It says, in all aspects of the ritual, the element of pleasure should be whatever most likely is denied in the celebrant's life. Now, it says, the gravest punishment is always incurred by one whose abstinence has become his indulgence. Thus be warned, to the chronic lover of distress, ruin arrives through the bestowal of indulgence. This, then, can function as a literal interpretation of the phrase, to kill with kindness. When a, quote, quote, man of God is portrayed by the celebrant, as in the later commemorative version of the ceremony, the ritual will serve to weaken the collective structure of the organization he represents. So it says that this factor introduces an element of the black mask into this rite. Now, the title Stifling Air refers both to the tension produced by the oppressive atmosphere during the early segments of the ceremony and the closeness within the coffin. When the performance of the ceremony was resumed in 1799, it was served as a celebration of the successful curse placed upon the King Philip and Pope Clement V by Jacques de Molay, who was the last Grand Master of the Templars, who had been condemned to death along with his Templar Knights. Now, the present text employs the actual curse leveled against the King and the Pope by de Molay. Through the dialogue of the Priest of Satan, the King and the Pope are presented in modern French prose. The statements of de Molay have been retained in their actual stilted delivery. So now moving on, uh, actually, let's keep going. So the numerous manifestations of Satanism in Masonic ritual, for instance, the goat, the coughing, the death's head can be e can easily be euphemized. But the rejection of certain values demanded by the ceremony of a stifling air cannot be cloaked in accepted theologies. Once the celebrant has taken this degree, he embarks upon the left-hand path and chooses hell in place of heaven. Besides being both a ritual and a ceremony, the ceremony of the stifling air is a memento mori carried to its highest power. All right, so now let's get into how this uh, ritual works. So... This account, it'll. I believe that the king and the pope were part of this ritual. It sounds like it when I read it for the first time. So I'm going to read it to you and um, see what you think. Okay, so these are the requirements for performance. So the chamber and the coffin must be either black or mirrored. Um, excuse me. The chamber is probably the room that they're in. Yeah, so the room that they're in must be either black, uh, mirrored, a mirrored chamber provides greater confrontation for the celebrant or the participant, making him hyper-conscious of his role. Mirrors also serve to rob the soul, according to old tradition. And austere, I mean, what, I, what, I, what, what I think that means by rob the soul is because windows are the eyes of the soul. When you look in the mirror, you see yourself, you know, when you look into your own soul, you see things that are going on, what you're going to do if you look in any mirrors around the room. Now, an old chair is provided in which the participant sits uh, during the first part of the ritual. The coffin may be made of any type, although a traditional hexagonal style is recommended, as this is the de de depicted, excuse me, as this is the type depicted in the actual sigil of the sixth degree of the Templars and combined with the skull and crossbones is retained in Masonic symbol symbology. The coffin must be large enough to accommodate two persons, hence special construction or modification is likely to be necessary. The usual devices of satanic ritual are all employed. Uh, additional accounterments uh, include a cat o' nine tails. A cat o' nine tails is basically a um, 
it's like it has it's like pretty much a whip that has like it's like a medium sized whip that has like nine different um has a handle of like nine different uh, uh, uh tails coming from it that which with you hit the person and they said a cruet for the wine of bitter, bitterness a cruet is basically a container for it's a container for liquid um and then there's also a goblet part of the ritual i'm thinking that you know you have the the liquid inside of the cruet or cruet however you spell it um, however you say it c-r-u-e-t c-r-e-u-t sorry and there is also a goblet for which you know a goblet a flask a chalice some you know same thing now, it says the celebrant, which was the Pope at this time, was attired in tattered and decaying vestments. Uh, the king is represented as counsel for the uh, participant. Uh, the king wears rags and a miserable ca- crown made out of cardboard. And De, La- De Malay, who we talked about earlier, is dressed in satanic splendor with the mantle of the Templars and the symbols of his office. He also carries a sword. Now it says that the woman in the coffin should be sensually appealing and seductive, and it's the opposite of the pale concept usually associated with death. And for music suitable for the ritual, uh, they say refer to La Messie Noir, like L E space M E S S E Noir, like black and like noir, or they say um, employ funeral and triumphal symphony. If you, if you Google those things or YouTube those things, you'll, you'll, you'll figure it out what they sound like. Now it says, here's the procedure for performance. The ceremony begins in the customary manner as described in the Satanic Bible. The 12th Enochian key is like Enoch, but Enochian key is red and the tribunal begins. So the Enochian keys are pretty much, uh, just passages glorifying Satan. You can just you can look those up. You just look up. There's like apparently there's like 19 of them. I found them on spellsofmagic.com. I'm not gonna read any of them, uh, but there's like 19 of them. You can go read those if you want to. Um, then the tribunal begins. After the accusations have been made, and the king allowed to intercede on occasion, judgment is passed, and the priest reads the denunciation, which is the city of dreadful night. Stopping halfway through the denunciation, the priest signals, signal, excuse me, signals at the wine of bitterness to be offered to the participant who, accepting his last drink, listens to, excuse me, listens while the litany is completed. After which, the priest signals to make ready for the final abasement and joy for the celebrant or the participant. The lictors or guards remove the participant from his seat and place him face downward on the coffin's lid. The priest then reads biblical passage, Hebrews 1, 6 through 12. Right? You know, God disciplining those he loves, things like that. Now, after, so they then they scourge him with the cat of nine. So they pretty much whip him. They beat him. They flog him. Right? And then the participant is lifted off of the lid of the coffin. Excuse me. The priest knocks three times on the coffin with a staff or a pommel of the sword. And then there's a scream heard from within the coffin and the lid lifts from inside. The occupant's arms beckon seductively, which is like the naked woman who's in there, or if you're gay, it'll be a naked man. The celebrant is lowered into the coffin by the guards, who leave him to his doom or renewal, as the case may be. As the infusion takes place in the coffin, the priest reads the 13th Enochian key. When the infusion is complete, the woman within shouts, Azez, or uh, Enough, 
and the participant is removed from the coffin and directed to excuse me directed by the priest to speak the participant proclaims his homage to satan and showing his new allegiance casts aside his symbols of martyrdom the priest calls for the king ostensibly to pursue his case it is discovered that the king has disappeared he has been banished to the place of eternal indecision and regret where he must stand in a humorless wind his tattering his, excuse me, his tatters blowing with none to see forever. The priest presents his final proclamation and the ceremony is closed in the standard manner. <clears throat> I don't really understand that part about the, the king disappearing. I don't, I don't understand that part. But there's something called the tribunal for the ceremony of the stifling air. Okay, it goes like this. So the pope, uh, excuse me, the priest introduces his participants. His high court convenes tonight. He says... To the heat of the Pope Clement and the King of France, Philip, who are accused of conspiracy, murder, and treason, he then asks Clement to justify his actions. So these are pretty much the Knights Templar um, putting the Pope and the King on trial, right? So the Pope pretty much uh, says, why am I here? What is the meaning of this? I cannot comprehend the mystery of my presence in this place. It is as if a strange and overpowering summons intrudes upon my rest. A curse must be upon me, yet... For even after death, the torment of the Templars is not still. They have destroyed this Pope, and with me, they have taken the King. Yet here I am, as I as, as it was in the centuries past. Will not their power stop with death? And so the King says something. The King says, this matter is old and should be forgotten. The priest replies, the matter cannot be forgotten. Many men have died among the bravest in France. The Pope says... I did not condemn them. The king, Philip, condemned them when he was informed by their indiscretions. He obtained damning evidence against the Templars. He had no choice when confronted with the evidence. They had wealth beyond their station and power as well. They had become arrogant in their manner towards the guardians of decency. They conducted strange, dark rites, unholy and terrible, which violated the precincts of the church. So he commanded them to death. It was only right. Actually, yeah, this is the priest actually, excuse me, this is the king and the pope putting the, the nice Templar on trial. Excuse me, I apologize. Say, Damalay, which was, who was the grandmaster of the nice Templar at the time, he says, what right did he have to condemn men to death for such reasons? What tide gave him the privilege? My knights and I swore to ensure victory for our sacred banner to dedicate our lives to the protection of our temple. Yet with it, we submitted our pledge to the king that our power would be his to wield. The priest says, King Philip only had the authority of a profane ruler, and he tried to ignore the superior force, the power of the magicians who today have called forth this high court. King Philip whispers something to the Pope. The Pope says, Philip was their king. He was their ruler, but he was also their guide, their spiritual guide. The Templars were arrogant. They had claimed to be above all laws. They had to be crushed. They had to discover the lesson of humility in the jails of their king. The Grand Master de Malay says, You will inform the king whose shackles bound us that we offered ourselves to his cause, yet he wished to find us unworthy and deemed us as anathema because we had our temple and did not wish to sacrifice our beliefs, our beliefs which gave us inner strength. One can drag an innocent man into a prison cell, but if he is armed with inner strength and is truly generous, he is not debased by the weight of his shackles. 
The king says, That may be true, Malay. Though your courage was not lessened by imprisonment and torture, you did, in fact, confess your heresies, your evil crimes, and those of your order by your unholy acts. The priest says, You tortured them. You treated the knights of the temple, who, in their strength and all that lives, fought to protect your throne as you would have treated murderers or thieves. De Malay says to King Philip, Your Majesty, when distinguishing me among all your subjects, you showed me with honor. I refer to this day when I received the illustrious distinction of bestowing my name on the son of the King of France. Little could I have expected of the solemn, excuse me, little could I have expected the solemn insult of appearing later before you as a vile criminal. Criminal. Priest says, Damalay, please tell the court how the Templars died. Damalay says, an immense pyre. Prepare for torture, rises as a scaffold. Each knight wonders if he will have the honor of being first to climb it. But the Grand Master arrives. The honor is reserved for him, and he proceeds to climb while his knights look on. His face radiates glory and vision of what will come far beyond that moment. He speaks to the crowd. People of France, remember our last words. We are innocent. We die as innocents. The verdict that condemns us is an unjust one, but elsewhere an August tribunal exists. One which the oppressed never implore in vain, for its judgments are without piety. I dare to cite before you that tribunal, O Pope of Rome. Another forty days shall pass, and then you shall appear before it. Everyone in the crowd was trembling and shuddered at the uh, pronouncement of the Grand Master. But even as this is actually after the Grand Master spoke, so everyone's trembling at the pronouncement of the Grand Master. But even great greater shock and fear swept over the crowd. When uh, Damalay, the Grand Master, continued to speak, he said, O Philip, my master, my king, even if I could forgive you, it would be in vain, for your life is condemned. Before the same tribunal, I expect you within a year. Numerous spectators moved by the Grand Master's curse are shedding tears for you, Philip, and terror spreads through the silent throng. It seems the very semblance of the future, excuse me, it seems the very semblance of that future, vengeance moves into the crowd. The executioners are terrified and suddenly have no power to come close. Tremblingly, tremblingly, they throw their torches on the pyre and quickly turn away. Turn away. Thick smoke surrounds the scaffold, growing by into billows. Suddenly, flames appear and leap up. Yet, in the sight of death, these brave knights do not betray themselves. The priest goes, enough. And then the, the, the denunciation follows. The priest says, oh, fraternity, do I unfold? Excuse me, oh sad fraternity, do I unfold? Your dolorous mysteries shrouded from of yore. Nay, be assured, no secret can be told to any who divined it who divined it not before. None uninitiate may by many a presage. Excuse me, none initiate by many a presage will comprehend the language of the message, although proclaimed loud of evermore. And yet a man who raves, however mad, who bears in his heart and tells of his own fall, reserves some inmost secret, good or bad. The phantoms have no reticence at all. The nudity, the nudity of flesh will blush, uh, though tameless. The extreme nudity of born grins, shameless. The unsexed skeleton mocks shroud and pall. The vilest thing must be less vile than thou. From from whom it had being, God and Lord, creator of all woe and sin, abhorred, malignant and impla implacable, I vow. 
that not for all thy power furled and unfurled for all temples to thy glory built what I assume the ignominious excuse me guilt of having made such men in such a world as if a being god or fiend could reign at once so wicked foolish and insane as to produce men he might refrain the world rolls round forever like a mill it grinds out death and life and good and ill it has no purpose heart when men mind or or will excuse me it has no purpose heart mind or will and this just keeps going on okay we keep talking about it uh so then the wine of bitterness is offered to the celebrant so it keeps going on like that and the priest pretty much closes the ceremony in the standard manner uh, yeah, so it says the ceremony follows progression described in the procedure for performance. Okay, so there's actually something else called the Seventh Satanic Statement. And this is something that I'm going to get to in our next episode. So I do appreciate you all for listening. I hope that you will join us in our next episode. It'll be uh, 135. And thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.